Good morning again. Philippians chapter 1. If you haven't turned there already, be opening in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. It's an exciting morning for us. Uh, We have begun to be introduced to the context here, but for the first time this morning, we start our walk as a church family through this, this wonderful book. What we're going to be faced with this morning is a blessed example for us on the part of the Apostle Paul. There are a few things more helpful to us than a really good example. We have sayings to that effect, don't we? A picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, Actions speak louder than words. We, We understand how helpful it can be to get the chance to see something done well, see something correct, and model ourselves after that. Part of what we did the last time we were here was to understand the situation that is going on uh, behind this book and to survey what we were going to find. And when we did that, we found a fairly complicated situation going on here. On the one hand, it's clear that this is a people, these Philippians, with proven love, years demonstrating genuine love, and love not just for Paul himself, although certainly for him personally, but love for the gospel itself and love for the gospel community that that word had begun to create across the globe. We saw that very plainly, and at the same time, we could see that this this is a people who are in the midst of some very hard times. They have known suffering and persecution, and those Difficult times have very clearly impacted them in a relational way. They were coming to treat each other poorly in some instances. In short, unity was being threatened because hard times were not bringing the best out of these believers. Do you know anything about that experience? Do you know about finding it? to be the case in difficult seasons that stuff is exposed in you that you wish were not there? And I wonder if you know what it's like to find that going on in the people around you as well. I suspect that you do. Uh, the, The closer that we get to other people, the more that we see. What should we do in situations like those? We live in a society that has a pretty simple solution to a problem like that. Leave for greener pastures. We have no shortage of options for us in almost any conceivable situation or relationship. Find greener pastures. Start over with a new group of people. A new family. A new church. A new company. Start over and everything goes back to... The superficial, it goes back to something that looks like smiles and laughter, doesn't it? But let me ask you, someone who enters that that situation, makes that choice, and he's in that moment with that new group, is he united to that new group of individuals? Surely we could only say that he's united to them if we define unity in the most superficial unattached way possible. And the point is that unity is a costly commitment, inevitably. It only exists 
when that group has been able to go through some things together and demonstrate a love that can overcome them. This is a letter that has a lot to say about that. Uh, it has a lot to say about unity, even famously so. It's sort of known for that theme. Unity within a particular church family, in particular. But long before we get to some of the famous sayings of Philippians, what we find, even this morning, is an example. We get the example of Paul. You remember what we noticed that Epaphroditus had just told Paul when he came to him right before writing this letter about the Philippian situation? What's going on here? Disunity, grumbling, wavering, and disharmony. And these are problems. There's teaching needed. There's correction needed for this group of Christians. And yet, Paul has real history with his people so that he truly knows them. He knows the genuineness of their love. He knows that this is the kind of faltering that is not unexpected in seasons of great difficulty. And so Paul models Christian unity for us in this opening. This is what we'll consider together this morning. We're going to look at the entire section here of verses 1 to 11 all at once. Next week, we may well come back into these verses and look at a couple of things more closely. But this morning, I want us to take the whole thing together and see it at that level. And before we start to wade in, let's read the passage together. I'll read Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, excuse me, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you be seated? Paul is going to model for us in this section, three components of Christian unity. And this morning, we're going to walk through each of these and then close by seeing some broad conclusions that they all bring to us. The first model that Paul gives us is a model of humble leadership. In any collection of human beings, the things that we're talking about this morning, the deliberateness, the, the sort of atmosphere with which unity can happen, 
in a collection of human beings, those are top-down realities, aren't they? If, if those in authority are not living towards the others with them in a way that is healthy, it's never hard to explain the subsequent atmosphere permeating the rest of that body. That's true of a family. It's true of churches. It's true of any organization of human beings. And we should notice this morning two signs of Paul's very deliberate approach here in modeling for them a particular kind of leadership. We see it already in the first two verses. Someone once told me, always pay attention to the differences in the way Paul opens his letters. He wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament, didn't he? And it's, it's noteworthy how his, his greeting changes. The first sign that we see of his intentional approach here comes in the way that he introduces himself, in that he includes Timothy in this greeting. Paul and Timothy, he says. One of the reasons that's interesting is because Luke and Silas are there with him too. So why just Timothy? It isn't unusual for him to include Timothy in the greetings of his letters. He does that in five other New Testament epistles. But sometimes he mentions Silas, too, in the greeting. He does that in First and Second Thessalonians. When he writes to the Galatians, they are greeted by Paul, he says, and all the brothers who are with me. So he differentiates depending on who he's writing to and the situation. Why might he do that? Well, it reflects what we all know to be the case, that relationships are not the same from one place to another, are they? They're not equal. Every individual is not equally meaningful to every other individual or even to every group of people. And there's a number of indications in this letter that Timothy had a particular place in the heart of the Philippians. Of course, he was there with Paul evangelizing and sharing the gospel when the word of God came to Philippi for the first time. Uh, And for reasons that we'll explore when we get into chapter 2, many scholars are quite convinced that the Philippians had actually sent Epaphroditus down here to Paul, hoping for him to take Timothy's place ministering to Paul so that Timothy could come up and join them. They were hoping for Timothy personally to return to them. So you see, by the third word in this greeting, Paul is showing already the extent to which he knows this people and he cares about them. He goes out of his way to say, your beloved Timothy says, Hello. He greets you with me. Paul is not the least bit concerned about their attention resting entirely upon him, the apostle. His concern is that the Philippians sense genuine care and love as they read this letter. That's a small thing, but that's one display that we see of Paul being deliberate here toward these Philippians. The second sign of this humble leadership that he displays is comes in the way that he describes himself to them. In fact, the way that he describes both of them. But it's especially noteworthy given who Paul is. There's something that he says and there's something that he doesn't say. And just consider the effect that it would create in the, uh, the atmosphere of this letter. But Paul does not refer to himself, you notice, as an apostle. He is an apostle. He doesn't refer to himself with that title here as he opens. And instead, he refers to himself as what? As a slave or a bondservant. 
They know that Paul is an apostle in Christ's church, and yet this emphasis from him puts the whole letter in a particular place. It sets a tone, doesn't it? It says from the beginning that this letter is coming from a place of willing, humble service. It comes from one who has been subjected and has willingly subjected himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they have. He is a servant of Christ, writing to servants of Christ. It's the slave of someone else who is writing these things to you. It creates a model. And they're going to need that model because he's not, he's not going to need to just address the, what we would call the lay congregation in Philippi. He has some things to address the leaders with as well that he had put in place there. Maybe you noticed that he, he identified them as a group specifically as he's introducing this in verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He names the two offices given to the church deliberately. Paul doesn't do that anywhere else in the New Testament epistles. And from the beginning, the kind of leadership that Paul, who is in authority over them, the kind of leadership that Paul models is servant leadership. It is something for him to be proud of, not ashamed of, that he is coming to them as a servant. It's the way he names himself here. It's just a fact that if Christian unity is going to exist among a body of believers, it must be modeled through the humility of its leadership. The authority is real and it's present. Paul is an apostle. And the under-shepherds there in Philippi are called and set apart to lead in that capacity of that office. But their leadership is modeled after our great shepherd, isn't it? The one who says he came not to be served, but to serve. And this is the tenor that Paul creates from the outset. And in doing that, he serves as a model for us. And really, it makes the entire scenario itself become a model for us, doesn't it? In a healthy situation, direct appeals to authority would be rare and generally unnecessary. Because it's love and respect and appreciation that wins the day and that allows Relationships of authority and submission to flourish as they're designed to. So this is the first thing, Paul's introduction as a model of humble leadership. The second model that we see from Paul is even more significant in this text. It's a model of godly praise. Let's look at verses 3 to 8. We see Paul thanking God for a number of things. And I wonder if you can hear it. Listen to it again. Can you hear that his praise here is all at once uh, extremely emphatic, genuine, because it's coming from someone who knows them, and personal. It's emphatic, it's genuine, it's personal. He says, I thank my God, and notice all of the word all, all of those uses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of this grace, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is emphatic. It's clearly praise to God, isn't it? I thank my God, he says. It's all in the context of prayer. He is describing to the Philippians the context of his own prayer life and the way in which, the extent to which it includes a remembrance of them and a thanksgiving for them. The question to whom is not the complicated question here. It is a more complicated question about this praise to ask ourselves, praise for what? Exactly what is he praising God for? We have to appreciate that there are two good answers to that question. One is clearly this praise is being offered for them. He is praising God for them, for the role that they have played in his life. That's obvious. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he says. In verse 4, the prayers he's making are, that are joyful, they're prayers for them. And of course, we're hearing about the content of these prayers where? We're hearing about it in a letter to these people. He has stopped and written a letter in which he can tell them that he is praising God because of them. He wants them to know what they mean to him, doesn't he? So one answer to the for what question is to say that he's thankful for them personally. And he's stopping to tell them that. It made me wonder this week as I was thinking about that, what are the ways that seeing that example would encourage us, would lead us to change our own behavior? What do you think? Do you think that we would become, if we saw this example and set about to see how it might change us, do you think we would typically become more or less conversant with the people that God's put into our lives? Would you say that compared to Paul here, that you are more overtly grateful or less so for those that God is using in your life to bless you? I think of examples in our own church context. There are so many ways that we just by virtue of belonging here, of worshiping together here, there are so many ways that a number of people are blessing us regularly. And we may not even be mindful of it. Can I bring some examples to your mind? And listen, I don't, if, if you hear these as guilt trips, you are mishearing me. I don't intend them at all as guilt trips. I intend them, most of all, for people like me. I can get very much behind an idea and even excited about it and be so incredibly mentally slow in thinking of how, uh, how that might actually exemplify itself. What are the situations in my life where this can be applied? So I bring these up to try to help people who are maybe like me. One is for people in here who are in a particular stage of life. Think of those who are in the child-raising stage of life. When is the last time that your child's Sunday school teacher, who was spending time every week planning lessons and giving up their chance to learn in the adult Sunday school class to teach your kids, when is the, time, when, when is the last time that that person came to your mind and brought you joyful thanksgiving to God so that you prayed for them and so that you then went and told them about that? 
I'll tell you, that one is convicting to me. I am in that stage. And I have done that before, but I cannot remember the last time that I've done that. It's been far too long. Uh, how about the service? This, one, this would be an example that affects us all. Uh, every single Sunday, you are surrounded by people who have given up time in the last week to prepare in some way for what you are coming and being blessed by. I think of our musicians, for example, and their amazing faithfulness. As you sit and worship and you sit under the word of God preached, I assume you realize that at least two of your sisters are not here doing the same thing because they have freely chosen to give that up, to go back and take care of babies in the back room so that some mothers and fathers can be able to rest and focus in their worship and maybe even so that you can worship with fewer distractions? Who are they? Do you know? You've benefited from them. These are acts of love for God's people. These are the kinds of things that God moves his people toward. And when we see it, what does God intend that it would create in us? I'll give you a hint. The answer starts with the letter G, and it is not guilt. The recognition that that's happening to us is not intended by God to produce guilt in us. Far from it. It's intended to produce gratitude in us. Awareness that God is blessing us by the means of the people he's put in our lives. It creates tremendous gratitude. Unity among God's people grows, and it grows quickly, as we cultivate an atmosphere of regular godly encouragement of each other. Now, those sorts of instances like that I mentioned, they come to our mind, and they do exactly what we see in Paul here. They bring joyful thanksgiving to God into our hearts, gratitude, and then they bring encouragement directly into the body as we not only thank God for them in prayer, but we also go and tell them what an encouragement they are to us and how grateful we are for the way that they are self-sacrificing out of love for us. I was at a conference last year that uh, dealt with a number of different topics. It was very fun because you could pick different things to go and listen to and, and learn from. Some of those things were very technical and difficult and deep. Uh, but I'll tell you, one of the things that I'm sure I will remember far longer than any of those was an extremely simple little comment that was made at one point. One man started talking about what he called the disproportionate power of encouragement. When we are being, when we're being genuine, right, when it's coming from a place of genuine gratitude, a specific word of that gratitude and encouragement can change a person's entire day. It takes 15 seconds of our time, and their entire day has just changed in a meaningful way. You don't know what they've been walking through. This may be the beginning of an entire shift of season in their life. What takes you 15 seconds to stop and share? It's what he was meaning when he called it the disproportionate power that encouragement has. It's a way that godliness itself is expanded and encouraged in a congregation. And here in verses 3 and 4, 
It's a display of godliness that we see as Paul shares his genuine gratitude for them by simply telling them about the role that they were used in by God that was so meaningful to him. So what is he praising for? Well, he's certainly praising God for them and for their role in his life. But we need to look a little bit more closely than that. It's not hard to see that, I don't think. It's not hard to see how grateful Paul is for them. But if we look more closely, what we find is that his thanksgiving has a root to it that goes beyond them. At its root, his, his gratitude, his thanks is not based on them and what they've done for him. Instead, he is thankful because of what their deeds signify. Verse 4, he's praying for them joyfully. Why? Verse 5, because of their partnership in the gospel. And that, not for a moment, but steadfastly, from the beginning, ever since the gospel came to them, they have been steadfast in partnering with him. And then notice verse 6, He's continuing to explain his joy, and he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, his praise stems from the fact that their actions demonstrate that they really are safe in the arms of their Savior. This is not just any good work in them that God has begun. God is, is moving mankind all the time throughout the earth to do. This is not a common grace kind of movement whereby even an unbeliever is moved to do something good. This is a work of true love for the gospel. And when he begins a work like that in a person's heart, he always finishes it. Always. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 6. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because, and let me encourage you here in your mind, finish that statement with the whole rest of the verse, not just with the next phrase. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart, but why? Because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Regardless of whether I have been imprisoned and therefore seemingly ineffective, they'll find out in the next section he's been far from ineffective in his imprisonment. But even if I've been imprisoned or if I've been active in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, it hasn't mattered to you. You have steadfastly sought to participate with me, to share with me in living out the grace that has come to us by the gospel. You've not just shown that priority when the chips were up, when it seems like we're winning. No, your actions testify to the fact that your commitment is to Christ's gospel, no matter what that's going to mean for you. We're going to hear in this letter, they've begun to experience some of the same sufferings and trials that Paul is experiencing. And it hasn't mattered. Their concern, their commitment is to the gospel, and they've shown that. Now notice, Paul is tying his confidence of their salvation to the tangible, visible display of their commitment to the gospel. I suspect that that's a subject we're going to return to next week to look at more closely. But what we notice this morning as we're watching Paul model godly praise 
is that he is not simply giving voice to the good things people are doing. He's giving voice to something deeper than that. He is telling his brothers and sisters that he sees God's grace at work in their lives. He is serving for them as an outside eye onto them, who sees them, who knows them. And he's telling them, I see the love of God at work in you. Do you hear how much deeper of an encouragement that is? So far beyond the encouragement of, I have really appreciated you. You've helped me out greatly. This is past that. Brother, sister, I see true love that only comes from God at work in your life. What it does is it lets them join you in looking deeper than at actions themselves. It lets them sense from you some confirmation and encouragement, not about their actions, but about the work of God in them. This is the example that we see this morning of godly praise. It acknowledges the person, certainly, and it even celebrates their significance in our lives, but it winds up taking their eyes off of themselves too and putting our eyes and their eyes together on the hope that God has poured his love out into us and that because of that we do indeed have every reason to be full of hope and confidence in our Christian walk. This is a model for us of what godly praise looks like. Now, at this point, we've used a new word. Now we've used the word confidence. And this is helpful to bring us into the third modeling that we receive here. Confidence is a good word to describe what is produced in the life of a Christian as another believer celebrates these sights in their life. But the third element of Christian unity that's modeled for us here is, you could say, the other side of that coin. And we'll call it this morning, confidence amid realistic expectations. Paul models confidence amid realistic expectations. We see this in the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians in verses 9 to 11. He continues like this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It won't take us long to break that down. Let's do that a bit before we walk through it. And I thought it might be fun to do that by putting this prayer in the most negative terms that we can. These are negative statements, but I I would suggest they're true statements. What is he telling them in this prayer? I've got four things. One, their love is lacking. It can grow to abound more and more, and it needs to. Their love is lacking. Number two, specifically, their love is lacking in knowledge and discernment. This is a very encouraging way for Paul to say that he's praying for them to grow in knowledge and discernment. When their love grows, this is the third, when their love grows, verse 10, they will be able to approve what is excellent. That is a great expression. We even talked about it last time, that it has to do with our powers of evaluation and discernment. 
certainly being able to tell good from bad, but even more directly, being able to tell, to discern the good from the best. It requires discernment. And Paul says here, you could stand to grow in your discernment. Fourth, verse 11, that ability to do that is attributed to the presence of righteousness, he says. You will do those things as soon as you are or to the extent that you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Do you hear in his prayer all of the ways that they still need to grow? They are in Jesus Christ. They are new, create, new creatures. They have the love of God at work in them. He's seen it. Yet there is fruit that comes through that union with Christ that they are continuing to lack in their display, which directly impacts them. It affects their powers of discernment. That lack means that they're getting some things wrong. And such shortcomings have a direct effect on their ability to love rightly. You take his prayer and go backwards, that's exactly what you read. And you say, wow, great job, Paul. Great encouragement. That's real encouraging. But you see, it is. It is great encouragement. Because this Paul, who sees these needs and who prays like this for them, has at the same time made very clear that he has only utter confidence in the reality of their union with Christ, in God's love for them, and therefore in their certain heavenly destination. He is doing and will continue to do both of those things. What this is for them, and my friends, what this is for us this morning, is a model of the way that Christian unity plays out between us in the mixture of complete confidence in God and completely realistic expectations about one another. We are not surprised when we get close enough to each other to find that there is a lot of work left to be done. We are not surprised when others fall short. And we are not terrified of being found out in the reality that we are still projects in need of a lot of work. This is what Christian unity looks like. And when this is what our unity aims to attain, there and only there does a Christian community become impervious to Satan's efforts to break us apart. I mean, that is the place where we are each truly set free to end any vain self-fixation and to end any vain comparisons with others and instead to simply set about the utterly freeing life of just wondering what the people around me need and wondering how I can best help. How has he made me that might be of use? I'm not worried even so much about messing it up or not doing it as well as it might possibly be done. I already know that I'm a fairly deficient human being. And I'm pretty sure that they aren't under any illusions to the contrary. So I can just content myself with doing what I can do, doing what God has gifted me to do. And I want to because God has truly given me a heart for the work he's doing in my fellow citizens of heaven. Paul conveys all of this before he even starts into the parts of his letter that we call instruction 
or exhortation. So the model that we find in Paul here is of such great benefit to us. It's very hard to know sometimes how a thing looks, how I'm supposed to think, how I'm supposed to act, until I just see someone else do it in front of me. And I hope you can hear in the Apostle Paul, I hope you can hear the freeing reality of this kind of posture, where he himself has felt no need to be anything to them as he's come to them, but a servant who has appreciated what they've meant to him and what God has done through them. I hope in the way that I'll close here, we're not belaboring some of the points, but I thought it would be helpful to end by noticing together two things. I'm going to call them two gracious habits that Paul has shown us here. The second will take longer to explain than the first. Gracious habit number one, deliberately focusing on positive, shared grace from God. Remember what he has heard from Epaphroditus, right before he sat down to write this. And yet this is how he starts the letter. It is intentional, and it is not compromise. It's not a display of Paul having a fear of man. Choosing to focus on the grace that God has made evident is not downplaying sin or shortcomings. It's what, it's what it looks like to prioritize our Christian unity. And it's valid because we are already not under any vain illusions about ourselves. There is something to be modeled in here as we see him choosing to focus on positive, shared grace from God that they have experienced. Gracious habit number two, drawing conclusions from past displays of grace. They are not in their best moment right now, these Philippians. It's not a great season for them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in what I'm about to say here, I don't at all mean, and I hope you hear me rightly, I don't at all mean that Paul is teaching us to ride out our lives living on past successes or past times of spiritual health. That's a recipe for disaster that is extremely unhealthy. I don't mean that. that. Paul is going to exhort these brothers and sisters. He's going to bring conviction to them later in this letter. But I see here a habit from Paul that we need to see. Because we need to sense the permission to cultivate this habit ourselves. I personally know Excuse me. I, I know personally several individuals in my own life that I have seen suffer greatly because, I'm sorry, because they have not understood what Paul clearly understands here. Here's what I mean. If, if we are not careful, 
we can fall into a spirit of cynicism and criticism that is unbiblical. We can do it to others, but what I, from what I've seen, it's maybe most common that we do it to ourselves. In the ups and downs that are inevitable for us all, You know those ups and downs, don't you? I know those ups and downs. I can be in a down and can then stand there and declare, see, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that up was a fake. I knew that it meant nothing, that it said nothing true about what God might be doing in me. And look, this, this proves it. This proves it. In other words, we can make it so that the only times and experiences and choices in my life that do display truth about me are the ones in which I have fallen short. We see here how Paul handles these Philippians. It is not what Paul does with them. He knows them. And he can tell them, brother, you are not where you need to be right now. But that does not remove my confidence one bit that God is working in you. I know what otherworldly grace looks like in a person. And brother, sister, I have seen it in you. Again, I don't pretend that that's the whole picture of how our relationships work over the course of years. This same Paul has a great deal to say about the need to persevere in faith and in active submission to Christ in our lives. Twice he is going to, in his letters, condition his words about God's kindness and his presence in us with words like this, if indeed you continue in the faith. It's not as if there will never be moments where warning will be necessary. But in seeing these interactions between Paul and these Philippians, we're not just seeing what is gracious of him toward them. We're seeing what is wise in the way he is treating and coming to them. We need that encouragement. And that hope. Paul's tone and his, his whole approach here in this opening has made me think about the situation way back in 1 Kings chapter 12. Do you remember when Solomon's son Rehoboam became king? And the first issue we're told about during his reign is a big interpersonal conflict among the people. And Rehoboam had two sets of counselors, didn't he? He had the experienced older elders who had served his father. And he had a group of his young friends. His young friends advised him towards shows of strength and harshness. And it was the older, more experienced advisors who counseled him toward patience and toward a service focus in his response. I can't help but think that as the Lord keeps giving us these examples of struggle and conflict among people, and he keeps showing us the path of wisdom to be the path of Love, a love that hopes all things, believes all things, never in a way that demeans or violates truth, but in ways that understand the human condition. I can't help but think that as he gives us these examples from the past, that he is weaving for us a great tapestry of what wisdom looks like when it's found and it's lived out. This is how this Paul begins to reach out in love and care 
to this struggling group that he loves so much. May we, as God's people, be further strengthened as we do what Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, when he writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Would you pray with me?